Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Well, welcome once again to uh, Peace Presbyterian Church. We are, we are at the start of a journey in the book of Luke. As we go through the Advent season, which starts next week, the Christmas season, and uh, at least through the end of the year, we're going to be going through the book of Luke, through the first couple chapters. In a sermon series I'm, I'm calling Songs of Hope. The first two chapters of Luke, uh, tell, they tell the story of uh, the birth of Jesus. They tell the story about how he is announced. They tell the story about John the Baptist. And through, through all of these, you know, these narrative accounts, through these two chapters, we have songs that are sung by various people, songs sung by priests, songs sung by young peasant women, but songs that look back to the Old Testament that are longing for a redeemer, longing for a savior, and we see how those songs are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ. But this morning is not Advent, and this morning we're not really talking about, you know, the, the story up until the birth of Jesus Christ. We're kind of looking at these first four verses in the book of Luke that really serve as an introduction to the book. Luke is writing this book in verse number four. He says, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, that you may have certainty. That's an important thing in today's day and age, to truly know something. On August 10th, 2019, a man named Jeffrey Epstein died in his jail cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York. Jeffrey Epstein was a convicted sex offender, all-around bad dude. We're going to keep it, you know, PG-13 this morning, so we're not going to talk about what exactly he did, but he was a bad person. Jeffrey Epstein was a billionaire. He was a man who had all kinds of money, had all kinds of rich and wealthy friends, all kinds of connections. And because of this, because of the circumstances surrounding his death, even though his death was ruled a suicide, that hasn't stopped various conspiracy theories from kind of spinning out of hand and saying, well, maybe Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. And honestly, it's kind of become sort of a running joke, a meme, if you will. I understand that the people in this room don't necessarily use that word a lot, uh, but people of my generation do. It's become... Sort of, sort of an ongoing thing that you say with a wink. In fact, there was, there was a congressman a couple weeks ago who was you know, tweeting throughout the course of the day, and with his tweets, he tweeted 23 times, the first letter of each one of those was, Epstein didn't kill himself. It spelled that out. And to be fair, there were some you know, kind of suspicious things surrounding the events of his death, right? Security cameras were, you know, the malfunction, guards were asleep, the precautions weren't taken that should have been. So that's, that's added fuel to the fire. 
And so a number of people have sort of grabbed on to this, what really is a conspiracy theory, and said maybe Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. Maybe there's this shadowy cabal of people, he had, you know, he had friends in high places, or maybe not so close friends in high places, enemies in high places, who didn't want him to testify. And there's this ongoing running joke, if you will, that casts doubt, that casts uncertainty on this official story that came out from the coroner's office. Now, I'm not one to buy into conspiracy theories. I, for me, it's going to take a lot of, you know, a preponderance of evidence, all sorts of, you know, things that point towards something in order for me to believe it. So generally, I, I believe what I'm told. But we live, in an, we live in an era, we live in a time where there's suspicion that's cast on the things that we are told. Many people feel that if they, they turn on the news, depending on whether it's one source or another, right? People from one side of the political aisle look to the other side and they say, I'm not sure that the people who are on the other side can be trusted. There's an inherent suspicion of what we are told, an inherent question of, is this real? It's an important question for us to ask as Christians as well. The Holy Scriptures are not a news report, but we can ask the question ourselves, whether we're asking it out loud, whether we're just asking it quietly in our hearts. We can ask ourselves, if I can't trust what I see on the internet or on TV, can I really trust this? But Luke is writing these things, again, in Luke 1, verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That is Luke's motivation for writing this book. He doesn't want this to just be a series of stories. He wants to put some facts and some evidence behind it. But first, before we get into that, we should ask ourselves, who is Luke? Where does he, where does he come from? Why is he, you know, why and how is he writing this book? Why does this introduction show up the way it does? So it, there's pretty much unanimous agreement that the guy who wrote the book of Luke was Luke. It wasn't signed by Luke, right? There's not his name after it. The gospel according to Luke is a title that we've put on it later. But everyone pretty much agrees that it was written by this guy named Luke. We know that the guy who wrote the book of Luke and the guy who wrote the book of Acts were the same person. There's an introduction at the beginning of the book of Acts that's very similar to this one. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, he says, he looks back to the first volume that was written, and he names the same guy Theophilus. So Luke, whoever he was, wrote the book of Luke, wrote the book of Acts as two volumes in order to declare the truth about Jesus, in order to tell the story of the early church. There is some speculation that he was going to write a third volume, but we, we don't necessarily know about that. But everyone pretty much agrees that, that Luke wrote this, and there's, the reason for that is because uh, in the book of Acts, sometimes Luke describes himself as, or he narrates what's happening. Sometimes he says, we, instead of just talking about Paul. And, you know, if we look down at all of Paul's compatriots, we see that it was probably this man, Luke, who was with him who wrote this. Luke is mentioned by name three times in the Bible, none of which are in the books that he wrote. He's 
named each time in the sort of the greetings at the end of Paul's books. Because anytime Paul writes a letter, he finishes it with saying, hey, you know, greetings to all of you people who are over there. And also, I've got these three guys with me who are helping me out with stuff. They say hi, too. And Luke's, or Luke's mentioned a number of times in there. He's mentioned uh, at the end of the book of Colossians, at the end of the book of 2 Timothy, and at the end of the book of Philemon. At the end of Colossians, Luke is called the beloved physician. Luke was a doctor. And we, when we think of a doctor, we get a picture in our mind, right, of a, you know, a family physician, like a pediatrician that we, we go to, we have a checkup once a year. If there's, you know, something more seriously wrong with us, something that needs to be looked into us, we'll get a referral to maybe a specialist, an oncologist, a cardiologist. We think of, you know, a medical doctor, someone who is going to treat us for our diseases. And Luke was absolutely that. But there's another kind of doctor that we have an academic doctor, right? If you go to school long enough, you get a, a PhD, and the D in there stands for doctor, a doctor of philosophy degree. And it's not that Luke wasn't a medical doctor, he was. But medicine was one of many things that you would study back in that day. Luke was a, a man of education. We can kind of think of both a PhD and a medical doctor. He did a bit of both. Luke was devoted to learning. And yes, he probably followed Paul around and probably helped the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul had some, uh, some ongoing health issues and Paul needed a guy who had studied the arts of healing to be able to be with him. But Luke was also a guy who was devoted to academic study. And in order to be devoted to academic study back in that day, you had to be someone with money. You had to kind of be upper class. A number of the books of the Bible, especially in the New Testament, are written by, by sort of, you know, people from a working lower class, right? The Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, people who were fishermen by trade. You read the books that they wrote in the New Testament, and the, and the language they use is very simple, very easy to translate. Luke's gospel is not like that. You kind of even get that sense as you're reading verses 1 through 4. You kind of, it's kind of this flowery language, and that kind of comes across in the translation. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the, and you know, it just kind of flows, and the, and the Greek is very much like that. Luke was an educated guy. He was an upper-class guy. He was probably a Gentile, a Greek-speaking Gentile, who came to Christ later in life. Luke probably did not grow up with these truths. But at some point, the truth of the claims about Jesus gripped Luke. He came to terms with them. He became convinced that they were indeed true. And he wanted to write this book in order to share the truth of Jesus with the world. There's this guy also mentioned in, in Luke, uh, verse number 3, named Theophilus. Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Who was Theophilus? His name means lover of God. So some people have you know, kind of speculated that maybe it's just, you know, there wasn't a guy named Theophilus, he was just writing it to the church you know, and, and the church is the lover of God. But who Theophilus probably is, and we don't know this for sure, but probably, 
was a benefactor. Someone who paid for Luke to go and do the research and the study that he was going to do in order to write this book. And it was common in those days that, you know, if someone was a benefactor of, of your research, then you would write them a little thank you note at the top, right? Dedicated to this person who, you know, without their funding, we wouldn't be able to have written this book. But it took a lot of work for Luke to compile this book, and Theophilus is probably the guy who bankrolls this. Theophilus is a guy who's curious about the faith. Perhaps he's a Christian but having some doubts. Perhaps he's kind of on the, on the edge of being a Christian. And, and he, either way, he commissions this work. He says, Luke, go do this research for me. And Luke did. And Luke tells us what research he does, which I think is really, really interesting. Luke gives three sources for his material. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So other people have, have already taken the task of putting together stories about Jesus. And guess what? We have those stories about Jesus. They're in our Bibles. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all next to each other. Sometimes there's material in Luke that just is from Mark and Matthew. Luke used Matthew and Mark as sources for the things that he wrote in his gospel. And it's not plagiarism. He, you know, he names names here. He's putting footnotes. It was okay in that day and age to do that. So Luke looked through these sources, looked through these other books and said, yes, there's truth in there. We're going to use those. But there's other information in Luke that's not found in Mark and Matthew. Luke goes on, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Ministers of the word there, we use that term sometimes to talk about pastors today, but here it's probably talking about a formalized oral tradition. A formalized oral tradition. Now back in that day, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the internet that you could just post a story on and go, you know, and spread it out through everybody. You can't just like type something up on Facebook. They didn't have computers, they didn't have word processors. In fact, most people back in that day, well, maybe most isn't fair, but literacy, the ability to read and write, was not as widespread as it is today. So in order to write down a story, in order to spread it around to other people, was very expensive and time-consuming. So they placed a lot more emphasis on oral tradition than we do today. But we do place some emphasis on it today. Right? When, when you're meeting a, a married couple, when you're just getting to know them, one of, the, one of the best questions to ask right, is the question about how did you guys meet? And everybody has a story. If you've been married, if you've, you know, have a friendship, you have a story about how you met. And it's a story that you, you practice over and over. And sometimes emphases are different, right? Sometimes even details change a little bit depending on what you're mushing together and what you're trying to tease out. But that's a story that we can tell and that we spend time practicing. In the same way, people would share stories about Jesus. You know, some of the disciples would, would go around and they would say, hey, this is a story about Jesus that I remember, that I know. And then other people would learn it and they would pass it along the same. So in, early, in the early church, that's how... That's how the word about Jesus would spread before it was written down. 
And the people who spread these stories, Luke refers to here as ministers of the word, people who carry on and have the duty to remember these oral stories. And if you lived in another city, say you lived in the city of Ephesus, and you had never you know, met Jesus, you were just a part of a church there, there would perhaps be someone called a minister of the word that you could go to and say, tell me the one about where Jesus fed the 5,000 again. And he would say, oh yes, that's one of my favorites. And he'd be able to tell you because he had learned the oral tradition. So Luke does two things so far. He looks at other sources that we have. He looks at, you know, this oral tradition that he's compiling. And he also looks at eyewitnesses, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. As you read Luke, a lot of the material that's not in, or that's in Luke that's not in other places has a lot to do with people. That's, that's an obvious sense. That's an obvious sentence. Let me, let me rephrase that. The birth narratives, for example, that we'll be looking through in the next month, stories from Mary, stories from Elizabeth. It's easy to imagine, we don't know this, but it's easy to imagine Luke traveling to Nazareth, you know, funded by Theophilus in order to find out what's going on, to find Mary. And he sits down with her, he, you know, perhaps stays in the city for a week, and he says, Mary, tell me all about when the angel came to you. Tell me all about that one time that Jesus, you know, you guys went to Jerusalem and Jesus hung out in the temple. You know, he didn't come back with you. Tell me about that. Tell me about what Jesus was like when he was a little boy. Tell me about your interactions with your cousin Elizabeth. Tell me about all these things. It's easy to imagine Luke going around and talking to these eyewitnesses. But the headline here is that Luke does his homework. He takes all of the information that he has in order to put it together into a book. And it's a book. Luke is actually the longest book that we have in the New Testament. A lot of people kind of think of, of Paul as being the person who wrote the most in the New Testament. That's actually not true. Paul wrote the most number of books. Luke wrote the biggest amount. There was, you know, if you count by word and verse, Luke was the guy who wrote the most. And we have this account of Jesus' life, this hefty account that Luke does his research on. And when he's all done with his research, we don't know how long it took, but he writes it all down, he you know, goes through and fixes all of his edits, and he gives his manuscript copy, copy to Theophilus. And he says, here we go. Thank you, most excellent Theophilus. I have written these things that you may have certainty. You don't have to wonder anymore, because I've done my homework, and I've found and can guarantee that what is in here is true. And that's an important question. You know, moving on from Luke even, how can we as Christians know that the Word of God is true? It's an important question. It's one that we have to wrestle with. And I have here just, just a few thoughts as we, as we consider this question. Maybe, maybe a little loosely written down, but a few thoughts nonetheless. What do we do when we have doubts about what the Scriptures say? What do we do when the scientific consensus and our interpretation of the Bible seem to conflict? What do we do 
when we have difficulty swallowing some of the things that the Bible says? How do we handle that? How can we have certainty that the Word of God is true? I want to say first off that it's okay for us to ask questions. It's okay for us to ask questions. If the Word of God is really true, and it is, but if the Word of God is really true, then an honest pursuit of knowledge will lead us to greater faith. If the Word of God really is true, then an honest pursuit of knowledge will lead us to greater faith. Some people, when they, you know, take the conflict between what scientific consensus is and our interpretation of Scripture, Note that I'm not saying the conflict between science and faith. We don't have time to go into that entire conversation, but science and true science and true faith do not conflict. But when they appear to, we can take two options. We can do two things. We can just say, oh, I guess the Bible's not true, and just toss it over our shoulder and kind of walk outside and just live our lives as if there is no God. Or we can say, you know, we can ignore all of the scientific work that's done and say, well, they're just a bunch of liberal scientists who are trying to destroy our faith, so we don't have to listen to anything they say. We can do one of those two options, but neither one of those works. Instead, we ought to ask, what is truth? We ought to wrestle with the hard questions. If you are like me, you know, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up being taught, that, or taught what the Bible says, being taught that it was true. But at some point, it was necessary for me, and this isn't a one-time thing, it sort of happens over a period of a few years, usually it starts when someone's a teenager, ends in their 20s, but it's important that your parents' faith becomes your own. It's important that you consider the truth claims of what you are being told. It's important that you do so, otherwise you just might get to, you know, further down the line and realize that you don't actually believe this thing. You've just always assumed it and never actually thought about it for yourself. But it's okay to ask questions, because if this is really true, then we will be led to the truth of Scripture. Second thing I have written down. Sometimes we can, we can believe the assumption that even secular academic people believe that Jesus wasn't a real person. There's kind of that assumption baked in sometimes, perhaps not in this room. But I have a uh, friend and mentor. Uh, he's the pastor of a church that I, that I did my internship at when I was in seminary. He was a man who came to faith later in life. He got saved when he was in college. And one of the things that he assumed when he was a kid was that Jesus was mythical. Was that, you know, Jesus was like Santa, or Jesus was like the tooth fairy, that he was just made up by people in order to, you know, peddle Christianity. But even for people who aren't Christians, even for historians who don't believe in God, everyone agrees that Jesus is real. That he is a real person who had true followers, who went on to found the largest and most influential religion in the world. Jesus was real, and his impact on human history is astounding. Now, not everyone's going to agree that Jesus rose from the dead. But let's not imagine here that the stories are, you know, all of these stories are kind of rejected out of hand by everybody when they're not. Third, 
Luke is one of several accounts of the life of Christ, and each one of them name their sources. We already went through Luke's list. Luke says, here's why we know this is true. I looked at other accounts. I interviewed eyewitnesses. I, you know, gathered information from this oral tradition that went from one person to another. Luke names his sources. And the other Gospels do the same, too. They say, you know, implicitly, they say, if you have questions about this, we named all of the people in this, and they're still around. You have questions about it, go talk to them. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about Jesus being alive, when he makes the central claim of Christianity, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, he says, if you don't believe me, here's a list of people who saw him. Maybe they would want to for one reason or another. But here's a list of a whole bunch of people, and there's 500 more beyond them. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you have questions about this, go talk to them. The Bible is not just one book that was written by somebody a couple hundred years after Jesus. The Bible is many different accounts of the same thing. And they all agree that Jesus Christ was a real person who lived, who died, and who rose again from the dead. We have multiple sources, and they all give their footnotes. Perhaps most importantly, the early Christians gave their lives because they believed that this was true. It's one thing to peddle a story to try to get power and try to get influence over other people. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, this guy rose from the dead and appeared to me, follow me and give me money. It's another thing to say, yes, I saw Jesus rise from the dead with a sword on your neck. To give your life for what you believe is the truth is incredible evidence that it's true. And when we see the early church, when we see the number of lives that were given up for the faith, for what's written in this book, I think we have a preponderance of evidence, more than enough to say what is in here is true. It's my prayer that as we, as we go through the first couple chapters of Luke, as we, as we go through and study the scriptures in general, it's my prayer that you can have certainty that what's in here is correct. These are not just moral lessons written down so that we can, you know, what's good and what's not. These are not just here to inspire us on to a good life. These words, this book, claims that a man rose from the dead. And if he did, and he did, then that changes everything. I don't want to claim to have every answer to all the difficult questions that can be asked about Scripture. There are some questions that I, can, I would just say I don't know to. But if you have questions, you know, what do we do about this? What about this apparent contradiction? How do we handle this? If you have those questions and they're weighing on you, come talk to me about them. I'm happy to wrestle through them with you and maybe I don't know the answer. But I'm still confident that the word of God is true, that Jesus is actually alive, that what Luke wrote down for us can be trusted and that we, just like Theophilus, 
can have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. We can know that the word of God is true. We can know that we can have salvation. We can know that Jesus Christ is alive. Praise be to God for what he has taught us. Will you pray with me?